Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week... Anthropologist Jason Hickel gives us a brief guide to global inequality and its solutions in his book, The Divide. Jason Hickel is an anthropologist at the London School of Economics. Originally from Swaziland, he has spent a number of years living with migrant workers in South Africa, studying patterns of exploitation and political resistance in the wake of apartheid. Alongside his ethnographic work, he writes about development, inequality and the global political economy, contributing regularly to The Guardian, Al Jazeera and other online outlets. His work has been funded by the Fulbright Hayes Programme, the National Science Foundation, the Wenner-Gren Foundation and the Leverhulme Trust. And Jason is the author of The Divide, A Brief Guide to Global Inequality and Its Solutions, which we're going to be talking about today. Jason, welcome to Little Atoms. Thanks very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Before we get into the book, let's talk about yourself for a minute and how you got involved in development work. I want to get us basically to the couple of incidents you talk about in the book where you realise that things aren't as they should be. But how did you start? Right. So the book actually, in a way, kind of emerges from a very personal story and experience for me. I grew up in uh, in rural Swaziland and uh, was surrounded by what I can only describe as, uh, as quite hideous poverty at times. My friends came from rural families that kind of dr- tried to eke out a living from the land. Um, and then when I moved to the U.S. for a university, then I was confronted with a world that was completely different, one that was filled with oversized cars and massive shopping malls and slick roads. And I really had to, to challenge myself to understand how this massively divided world came to be. And I was persuaded by the narrative of development, the idea that um, that poor countries are just catching up to rich countries, that rich countries give a bit of aid to poor countries to help them up the ladder. And that inspired me to get involved in development myself. And so I moved to India for a little while, and then I moved back to Swaziland for a while, and I was working with major international development organizations. But I found myself really dissatisfied by the kinds of solutions that they were offering. To me, it seemed like they really weren't taking into account the deep structural drivers of the problems they were seeking to solve. So um, I needed something different, and that's kind of what spurred me on to this long, uh, many-year journey, I guess, to understand and communicate the way that our world has come to be. There's a particular incident that you talk about in the book which sort of brings together a few of the threads of what you think has gone wrong with development and we'll sort of get to the things that encompass that later on but just tell us about that story this is both of your parents were medics in 
Swaziland, and this is at the moment when the AIDS crisis in in the developed world is starting to kick off. And what happens? Right. So my parents are are medics, and they're Americans. They moved to Swaziland before I was born. I was born there along with my siblings. And uh, and then in the 1980s, which is when I was a young boy. Um, is when I was really confronted with the reality of AIDS. Swaziland had and still has the highest rate of HIV infection uh, in the world. And it was just devastating to see. I mean, the, the population actually declined during the 80s and 90s. My parents were at the front line of dealing with this. My father diagnosed the first case of HIV in the country. And at the time, we knew that medicines that would save people's lives were available. The only problem was they were under patents and uh, they were extremely expensive, something like $15,000 per yearly course. And that was, of course, way out of reach of anyone in Swaziland to afford. At the same time, in India, there were generic manufacturers of these drugs that were producing the drugs for about $300 per year, a dollar a day. And that would have saved lives in Swaziland. But the pharmaceutical companies lobbied the WTO, the World Trade Organization, to prevent them from exporting that drug to other poor countries like Swaziland. And as a result, thousands and thousands of people died completely needlessly in Swaziland. And I, and I watched that happen, all as a result of the way that the, the global economy was structured. And that was a real insight to me, I think, and spurred me to think more about what was going on there. What's the idea behind the divide? So I wrote The Divide to reach out to a broad audience to help people understand how our world came to be as divided as it is today, with a few rich countries uh, enjoying very high standards of living and the vast majority of the world remaining in uh, quite severe poverty. And really, I, I see the book as kind of a, a mythbuster of sorts. It's designed to challenge some of the dominant misunderstandings that we have about the way that the world works. So one of the major ideas that I seek to get out there is that poverty is not a natural phenomenon. Poverty is created, and we can see the creation of poverty through historical processes. It's really a political problem and not just kind of a, a natural one. Uh, so we have to understand that. The second major point I want to make is that we often think that rich countries are reaching out across the divide to help poor countries develop, when in fact exactly the opposite is true. Aid is flowing in reverse. More wealth is flowing from poor countries to rich countries than flows the other way around. And this is a major, a major generator of poverty. And then the final point that I want people to understand is that in addition to making the economy fair, which is what we need to do if we want to tackle global poverty, we need to recognize that growth is not an adequate answer to global inequality, to the problems that we see. So we have to start thinking about ways to eradicate global poverty and bridge the divide between poor and rich without relying solely on GDP growth. And that is a really difficult question people have to work with. So the, the idea of development of the developing world, the global south, international aid is is actually relatively recent in the way that we think about it now. So let's talk about how it came about. It begins with Harry S. Truman. Yeah, Harry Truman is an interesting figure here. He's the first person uh, who really uses the term development in a real public way as a kind of policy. This is 1949. This is his, uh, his inauguration speech. And it was kind of a fringe idea. He didn't really want to use it. An aide convinced him to use the idea of rich countries in the West reaching out across the divide to give poor countries a hand up. And so he used it in his speech, said it was going to be a major new program to bring new levels of prosperity to the world. And everybody was thrilled about this idea. It really um, captured the public imagination. But what I try to point out in the book is that this was always a kind of tool of perception management, okay? At the time, the U.S. already had a long history, even during Truman's own career, of violently intervening in Global South countries, in Latin America in particular, to secure their economic interests, even though it meant, in some cases, uh, doing really serious damage to the economies of Latin American countries. And so it wasn't as though poor countries were somehow naturally poor. They were being actively made to be poor by U.S. intervention in this instance. Truman was able to erase all of that history 
by creating this new image that he gave to the public of poor countries as though they existed on an island separate from rich countries, um, having nothing to do with process of accumulation in rich countries themselves. And it gave rich countries a way to feel noble, that they are somehow contributing to the bettering of humanity without pushing them to consider their position within a global class divide that was producing the problems that they wanted to solve in the first place. And there's, a, there's another guy, an economist, Walt Whitman Rostow, whose ideas are used again to sort of suggest that the problem with the developing world is sort of internal technical problems within their own systems rather than a global thing, isn't it? What was his idea? Yeah, so we can think about it this way. So if Truman's narrative of aid and charity and development was used to convince Americans and then later Europeans that they were not responsible for the, uh, for the immiseration of the global south, Rostow's narrative, uh, which came later in the 1960s, was designed to convince global South countries themselves that their internal policies were what was driving their own poverty. They were responsible for their own poverty. And so Rostow's ideas became very powerful in the State Department as an instrument of foreign policy. The U.S. government wanted to prevent leaders in the global South recognizing that the global economic system was basically designed against their interests. So instead of focusing on trying to create a fairer global economy, they would instead be channeled to think about internal policy reforms. But we do give aid to the developing world. Everybody, all countries in in the West now have like a percentage of their budget that goes out. We have like, you know, a minister for overseas development and stuff. There's a lot of money. But the issue here is that all this money that we're giving, we never see the other side do it. It's basically a drop in the ocean compared to the money that we're taking out. So tell us what's being taken out. Yeah, so this is a really central argument in my book, and this is one of the key takeaways that I want people to understand, one of the myths that I think needs to be exploded. We have this assumption that rich countries give lots of aid to poor countries to help them develop. But in fact, that's exactly the opposite of reality. So it's true that rich countries do give a lot of aid. About $130 billion per year goes from rich countries to poor countries in the form of aid and charity. Now, that's a lot of money. That is more than all of the profits of all of the banks in the United States per year combined, right? That's, that's a lot. But at the same time, vastly more than that amount flows from the periphery of the world system to the core, from global South countries to global North countries. So in the form of, say, illicit financial flows to the tune of around $1 trillion U.S. dollars per year. I mean, that's nearly 10 times the size of the aid budget. Then you have, for example, interest payments on international loans, on debt, uh, which are about $200 billion per year, a direct cash transfusion, basically, from poor countries mostly to, uh, to banks in rich Western countries. Uh, then you have about $500 billion per year that multinational companies take out in the form of repatriated profits from developing countries into rich countries. So all of these flows dramatically outstrip the foreign investment and the aid that flows from uh, rich countries to poor countries. So in effect, what we have here is a situation of aid in reverse, Poor countries are developing rich countries. Rich countries are not developing poor countries. But the discourse of aid is very powerful because it obscures the reality of these reverse flows. So everyone's convinced that aid is happening, but behind the scenes, what's really going on is exactly the opposite. And if we knew about that, we would be collectively outraged. And certainly Global South countries would demand a fair global economy. But instead, the narrative and the rhetoric of aid predominates, and we accept the status quo because of that. I'm John Grindrod, you're listening to Resonance FM, and this is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. There has been big initiatives, big worldwide famous initiatives to try to do something about global poverty. And I want to talk about the UN's Millennium Development Goals, which were these big, you know, multiple points 
with scores, league tables that were supposed to be achieved by a certain point in terms of reducing both poverty and hunger. And we'll talk about both of these separately. And it looked like we were doing really well. If you look at the figures that came out from the UN, in most areas, there were some deficits, but in most areas, they seem to be doing really well against their targets. So what's up with those figures? Yeah, so that's very interesting. For most people, uh, their experience of international developments, if they don't participate directly themselves or give money to charities or something like that, then it's mostly in hearing the narratives and reports that come out of the United Nations from the Millennium Development Goals. Now, there were lots of goals and there was success in a number of them. And we should not dismiss the fact that in many cases, in many ways, the world has improved during the period of the MDGs. Um, between 2000 and, and 2015. But the main story that the MDGs told us is actually not entirely accurate. And their main story was that they had succeeded in reducing global poverty in half. Now, that story sounds really persuasive, and it's a particularly compelling for anyone who wants to justify the status quo of the global economy. So as soon as that story was published in 2015, the idea that there was this massive reduction in global poverty, then conservative and right-wing bloggers got online and they immediately started saying, look, this is evidence of the fact that globalization is working, uh, that free markets are reducing poverty. Whatever we've been doing over the past decades, we should keep doing because clearly it's working. But scholars then started coming out of the woodwork and saying, wait a second, the poverty numbers that the MDG, the MDG program is relying on are in fact not accurate. So to understand how the poverty numbers are wrong really requires that we think about the original goal that the MDGs set for themselves. And that was to cut the absolute number of poor people in the world by half between 2000 and 2015. But then what they did is they changed this goal in a couple of subtle but really important ways. First, they switched from using absolute numbers to using proportions. Now that made the goal much easier to achieve because as long as the global population was growing, then the proportion of people in poverty would automatically be diminishing. The second thing they did was they shifted the baseline from 2000 back to 1990. And that allowed them to take advantage of the substantial gains that China made against poverty during that period, even though that had nothing at all to do with the MDGs. And the final thing they did is they moved the poverty line, the international poverty line, lower in real terms, which made it seem as though there were fewer poor people than there actually were before. The poverty line right now is set at $1.25 per day. That's the international poverty line. But scholars are coming out to say that it's far too low for even basic human subsistence. In reality, people need closer to about $5 per day just in order to achieve basic nutrition, basic uh, normal human life expectancy, um, basic chances for infant survival, etc. Now, if we look at the global poverty headcounts at $5 per day, we see that it's about 4.3 billion people, uh, which is more than 60% of the world's population. So this completely changes the conclusions that we draw about the world. All of a sudden, it's clear that the global economy is failing the vast majority of humanity. And it's a much bigger problem than we had assumed before. If 4.3 billion people are in poverty despite 60 years of development efforts, then that means that our development program is failing and that to eradicate poverty is going to, is going to require not just tweaking the edges of the global economy, but rather fundamentally transforming it to make it fairer for the world's majority. I was going to say, in case anybody missed an irony there, you mentioned that by massaging those figures, it was able to bring China in and the development of China massively changed you know, the perception of the reduction of global poverty, basically. And of course, as we go on in this interview, this is going to be a story about you know, the rise of free trade, the rise of neoliberalism and you know, the World Trade Organization and the World Bank and stuff. 
And that's a story of this strange half-communist, half-capitalist society massively pulling its own sort of people out of poverty, which in itself is not a story that the Chicago school really are going to want right. to be told, is it? Yeah, no, that's a really important point. The, uh, the only places in the world where there have been really substantial gains in development and uh, progress against poverty uh, and hunger have been China and East Asia. Okay? And the way they've managed this impressive progress is through a mix of kind of control over their own markets and, uh, and state interventions in the economy. Right Now, this is not to say they haven't liberalized. Of course they have. But they've done so on their own terms, as opposed to the rest of the global south, where the World Bank and the IMF forcibly imposed a Washington model of sort of free market liberalism that ended up crashing per capita income rates and so on. So the success of China and East Asia is not at all a story of the success of um, the Washington model of globalization. It's a success of, uh, of real sovereign control over a country's own markets. And so it really does challenge the narrative of free marketeers and the IMF and so on. Now, if you take China and East Asia out of the equation, then what we see is even at the, at the lowest possible poverty lines that the World Bank offers, we see that there's been no progress at all uh, against global poverty. And according to many measures, poverty has been increasing. So it changes the story quite a bit. And that's poverty we're talking about. Let's talk about hunger. So how is hunger measured? So this is a really fascinating story. Um, hunger is another of the big indicators in the Millennium Development Goals. And again, in 2015, when the, when the report concluded, they claimed that we had nearly cut the global hunger rate in half. Now, that was interesting to anyone who was paying attention, because even just three years prior, the UN had admitted that we were on track for complete failure on the hunger goal. Hunger actually was increasing really dramatically and had been for pretty much the entire period. So what happened? How did they manage to turn a rising trend of hunger, worsening trend of hunger, into suddenly a success story? And the answer has to do with the methodology. They actually, at the very last minute, three years before the conclusion of the report, they changed the methodology to make it seem as though fewer people were in hunger than before. And they did that basically by lowering the calorie threshold for hunger and uh, by not counting the impact of the food price crisis that hit in 2007-2008. And, and that immediately changed the story. So we really can't take those figures at face value. In fact, the UN wants to, wants to claim that the hunger rate right now is about a little bit less than 1 billion people. But in reality, using more accurate measures of hunger that scholars agree we need to be using, it's closer to 2.5 billion people, which is uh, you know, significantly higher than, uh, than what the UN claims. And also, you mentioned that the, the level of calories that they suggest that you know a person's intake should be per day to be above that hunger threshold. I mean, it's probably okay for me, who's at work, sat at my desk, you know, wondering whether to eat that second donut or not and keep this gut off. But if I'm like working twelve hours a day in some field somewhere, that's going to be a, a bit more labour intensive. Yeah, this is a real problem with the UN's uh, poverty threshold. Uh, it's actually devised by the Food and Agricultural Organization, and their threshold for poverty is actually set at what they say a person who lives a sedentary lifestyle uh, needs for sort of basic survival, uh, having nothing to do with nutrition, just pure calories. So it varies by country. In some countries, it's like 1,600 calories per day. In other countries, it's uh, 1,800 calories per day. It varies. But the key point here is that the vast majority of poor people do not live sedentary lifestyles. They live um, highly active, demanding lifestyles because they're working so hard. So for example, a rickshaw driver in India uses up around 4,000 calories per day 
right, just to uh, to eke out a, a meager survival. So there's no way that the hunger threshold that the UN uses is an accurate depiction of hunger around the world. At some point, these Millennium Development Goals were replaced by another thing, Sustainable Development Goals. What changed? So the Sustainable Development Goals are are interesting. They, um, they're more inclusive. They brought more people into the conversation, people from the Global South. It pays much more attention to climate change and to ecological um, issues and so on. So in that sense, it's, it's, much more, it's much more progressive. But the problem with the sustainable development goals, okay, so these goals, for people who don't know, started in 2015. And the goal that they've set is the total eradication of poverty by 2030. Okay. And it sounds like a wonderful goal. But they're still using this rock bottom international poverty line that the MDGs used. Okay. And what that means is that we just can't trust the, uh, the claims that they're going to be making about progress against poverty. So scholars have been demanding that they raise the poverty line uh, for this exercise to at least $5 a day, which is what people need for basic subsistence. So if they do that, then of course, they're going to see that progress against poverty is much, much slower than, than, um, than they're willing to admit. And, and the project will end up being a failure unless they make really dramatic changes to the way that the global economy is organized. And those changes right now are not on the cards. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Jason Hickel. We're talking about The Divide, A Brief Guide to Global Inequality and Its Solutions. And Jason, let's let's go right back now and start looking at the history. Basically, I want to talk about where did Great Britain get its money from? How did we develop? 
Right. So this is one of the main arguments that I want to make, and that is that we have to understand the history of poor countries and rich countries as intimately intertwined. So just as I said earlier, that the poverty of poor countries didn't emerge in a vacuum, it's been created by purposeful policy. Those are exactly the same policies that have allowed uh, rich countries to become rich in the first place. And this goes all the way back to colonization. So during the colonial period, well, first of all, let's look at the Industrial Revolution. In fact, let's go back even further, because you posit a point in, you know, in British history, or, you know, English history, whatever it was then, wherein, you know, people didn't work in jobs, people didn't work for wages, they were serfs, they worked on some lord's farm, they had this agreement where they had a bit of land where they could grow their own crops, grow what they needed for them and their family, and if someone came along and said, do you want to come and work in my factory? Why, you know, why would they have bothered? This is so important to the story of global inequality. It really all started with an idea and a policy in England itself, right? So England in the medieval period, like you said, full of peasants. Now, crucially, you know, we often think of peasants as completely miserable people. And of course, in many cases, they were. Life expectancy was not very high. Nutrition standards were poor and so on. But peasants did have the most important thing they needed for survival, and that was that they had um, access to land for farming, for uh, wood for heating and for building their houses, you know, access to water for, for their needs, etc. That uh, might be their own land or land that they, they were rentiers of, or it might be common land. Exactly. And, and, and the commons were really crucial to all of this. People had access to the commons, and that was a right that was guaranteed in a really important document called the Charter of the Forest, which was signed in 1217, two years after the Magna Carta. People know about the Magna Carta. They know much less about the Charter of the Forest, which uh, was really like the common man's charter, right? It, it enshrined rights for ordinary people to access the commons. Now, then, during the Middle Ages, starting in about the 1500s, there was um, a really intensive campaign by landowners to start enclosing the commons, kicking peasants off of the commons, abolishing their, their traditional uh, secure rights to access to common lands. And what this did is um, it created a, a kind of refugee crisis. It was really a sort of mass displacement of, of England's population. People, for the first time, had no way to live. They had no way to uh, grow food for themselves. They had no way to feed themselves. They had nowhere to live. So, so really, it, it created a humanitarian crisis. And it's, it's so important that we understand that crucial piece of our history because it, it was only because of that refugee crisis uh, when people were kicked off the land that there was a workforce that became created and ready to use for the Industrial, um, the industrial Revolution. So if you're a capitalist and you want to set up a factory, you can only do that if there are people who are willing to sell themselves to you for very, very cheap. And the enclosure movement, which kicked all the peasants off the land, created precisely that population of cheap, exploitable labour. And you can obviously also find that cheap, exploitable labour, if you want to call it cheap labour, free labour elsewhere. Right, yeah. So, uh, so crucially, this process of enclosure began in England and was, was really sort of the, the, the birth of capitalism uh, in the true sense. But it was replicated all around the rest of the world through the process of colonialism. And the first instance of this, actually, is in Ireland. You have English landlords going over to Ireland, kicking peasants off the land, creating basically agribusinesses, right? Peasants in Ireland were forced onto very small plots uh, of land. And in order to survive on those plots, they had to rely on the, the densest, ca most calorific crop that they could, could access, and that was potatoes. So there was a total reliance on potatoes instead of the broader array of crops that they had relied on before. As a result of this, when the potato blight hit in the, the mid-19th century, then uh, it destroyed their access to food. There was the Great Famine of 1845. One million Irish people died um, as a result of English colonial policy in Ireland, basically replicating enclosure. That gives you a sense for how immiserated 
this policy made people. And of course, there was food there. And there was food there. At the time, uh, these agribusiness farms I was telling you about that the, la- the new landlords had were exporting record amounts of food uh, from Ireland to England. Now, we see the exact same process happening in India in the late 19th century. The first thing that the Brits did when they were in India was they reorganized the farming system. And as, as a consequence of that, uh, so many people lost their access to, uh, to the commons that when the usual uh, drought hit, um, the El Nino drought hit, uh, they didn't have access to any of the resources they needed to, to survive that in the ways they normally would have done. And so as a result, in the last 25 years of the 19th century, 30 million Indians perished of completely needless famine. Um, as a direct result of British colonial policy in the agricultural sector. Staying with India for a minute, it's often thought that the empire, whoever it is, whether it's Britain, Spain, the Dutch, whatever, are going to other countries and basically finding a country in disarray and somehow civilising it. So what would have somebody in India, what would their living standards have been compared to Europe at the point before the British went there? It's a good question. So we know that before the British invasion of India, there were parts of India and in China where living standards were higher than they were in Europe. So this whole idea that the global south has always been poor and England or Europe has always been rich is just not true. If you go back to uh, prior to the colonial period, in fact, exactly the opposite appears to be the case. Living standards in uh, England uh, for the vast majority of people were very, very low. You know, life expectancy of around 30 or if you're working class, if you're born into a working class family, you can expect to live to 15. Of course, that takes account of infant mortality rates. But it was much higher in uh, parts of India and China. Now, from the entire period of British colonization, from 1757 to when the British left in 1947, there was no increase in, uh, in the per capita income of Indians, right? So, uh, so all of this, this rhetoric that we hear, uh, even coming from, from figures like Boris Johnson recently, saying that England gave India the railroads and so on, uh, what's abundantly clear is that there was, in fact, no developments uh, during this period. Per capita income stagnated. Life expectancy in the last part of the British Empire in India declined. There was this famine in the late 19th century at the very height of British colonial power in India that killed off 30 million people. So, I mean, what, what happened here is under, uh, under British colonial rule in India, uh, India was effectively de-developed. Before the colonial period, they had 27% of the global economy. By the end of the colonial period in 1947, their share was reduced to 3%. Meanwhile, England's share increased dramatically during that time. So England really became a a global power in part because of uh, the de-development of India. And so another key thing that happens in India, back over in Britain, they've enclosed the land, so they've developed this workforce, they've started rearing sheep on all of that land, so suddenly there's loads of wool, suddenly we get this industrial revolution to weave the wool not enough wool, so we start getting cotton from elsewhere, something else we get from the empire. All of these things make Britain into the power that it becomes, brings in the money. They get to India. India itself already has quite an established and and great fabrics industry. And of course, this won't do, because that's a competitor. Exactly right. So it's really crucial to understand that it wasn't just because of direct plunder that Britain and Europe managed uh, managed to develop Um, into rich countries. It was also because of the slave economy, as you just pointed out, they were able to extract uh, enormous amounts of of cotton and sugar from slave colonies, right? Now, what that allowed them to do was it took pressure off Britain's land. And so it allowed them to shift labor from the land into industry. And that was not a luxury that other countries uh, were able to take advantage of. So really, it was because of the slave economy that Britain was able to shift to industrialization. Now, as you pointed out, Britain developed very powerful textile uh, industries, But 
in India, India actually had powerful textile industries as well during the period of colonization. And Britain was not was not happy with this arrangement. <laughs> India was known for producing some of the world's most beautiful textiles, and they were direct competitors to, to Britain's uh, products. And so what the colonial power did was they went around literally, literally destroying the looms of the most famous Indian weavers, crushing their thumbs so they would not be able to produce the, the products that were competing against, um, against British products. And this basically made India into a captive market. Britain controlled the trade tariffs uh, in India and flung open the doors of the Indian market to allow British goods to flood in, destroying local competition, basically. So without India being a captive market to British industry, the Industrial Revolution would not have generated the kind of income that it did for Britain. I'm Emma-Jane Unsworth. You're listening to Resonance FM, and this is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. Let's just briefly talk about what happened when... Britain and China meet. How did we deal with China? So this is another absolutely fascinating story that I cover in the book. So Britain is in is a massive trade deficit to China, right? And so they uh, they send ambassadors over to China to try to convince the Chinese emperor to open the doors of the empire to British goods so that they can settle the trade deficit. The emperor at the time says, wait a second, um, you actually don't have anything that we particularly want. We produce all the stuff that we need right here at home. So why would we want to open our, our, our trade barriers to you? And uh, Britain is, of course, incensed by this response. They decide that it's, uh, it's arrogance of the emperor to decide that that they can disobey the, uh, the British Empire. And so in response, they send over a fleet of powerful Navy ships and engage China in war. They effectively invade China. China does not have the, the naval power that Britain does at the time, uh, and China's navy is crushed. These are known as the Opium Wars because one of the only products that Britain had to sell to China was, in fact, opium. And it was opium that was grown in their colonies in India, okay? And this is the only product that, uh, that Chinese consumers actually wanted <laughs> from Britain. The rest were basically useless to them. China was not particularly happy with Britain selling opium on, Chinese, on China's market, made it illegal. Britain kept doing it against the law. And it was, it was, it was because of China's seizures of British opium shipments that Britain ended up invading. And this is why they were called the Opium Wars. As a consequence of the Opium Wars, Britain forced China to slash its trade barriers, open up its economy to British trade. Um, and as a result, China, which was previously a really dominant world power uh, in terms of share of the economy, its share of the economy completely collapsed. Uh, it became basically a, a kind of subordinate colony of, of Britain. Obviously not quite contemporaneously with what's going on in India and what's going on with China. But Britain has, at some point, another colony. How does... America itself develop? Because Britain's got all of these same ridiculous trade tariffs of America, taxation of America, that's what the the revolution ends up being about. What do you do? What does a country like America do from the position it's in after the revolution to make itself into, you know, not a global power, but at that time, a, you know, a solid, rich first world country? Exactly. So, so this is crucial to understand. So Britain's main tactic in dealing with its colonies was to subject them to what we call unequal treaties. And basically that means that Britain can keep its trade barriers up so that goods from the colonies can't enter Britain, but they forced the colonies to keep their trade barriers down so that Britain could flood their economies with Britain's own goods, right? Now, America was, when America was a colony, was subject to an unequal treaty just like that. The Americans were really upset about this. They felt it was deeply unfair. 
um, as did the Chinese, as did the Indians. And they fought the American Revolution largely over this issue. And once the Americans achieved independence, what did they do? They put up trade barriers. They protected their economy. They became the most protectionist economy um, in the world at the time. This was known as the American system. And it really allowed America to, be, to become a powerful industrial force, matching and then later exceeding Britain. So this is fascinating. The two most powerful rich countries in the world developed precisely by using protectionist measures through state intervention in the economy. This contrasts with the advice that Britain and the U.S. now give to the rest of the world. They say develop by, uh, by lowering your trade barriers, opening yourself to world trade, which is exactly what they didn't do during their own period of consolidation. So it's really a kind of double standard. It's like um, basically rich countries, by pushing out this idea of uh, trade liberalization, are kicking away the ladder that they themselves climbed to success. Let's bring it all the way forward, because I want to get us eventually to the post-imperial period. But before we get on to you know, neoliberalism and what happens and, and the, the sort of history of the sort of post-war period, let's talk about how, how different the outlook on the world was at the time of the New Deal and Keynes. You know, how did we used to think about trade? Right. So in the post-war period, there were new ideas really bubbling up from the rubble of the Great Depression and World War II. And the idea basically was we want a fair deal for workers. Uh, we want, uh, you know, decent public services. Uh, we want fair trade practices. Uh, we want state inter intervention in the economy. It was the era of the rise of Keynesianism, right? And this uh, was enormously productive for Britain and the U.S., for example, and much of the rest of Western Europe, who used Keynes' ideas about a kind of mixed economy, state intervention in the economy. The idea basically was we should use a democratic state to intervene and manage the economy to create well-being for, for the population, right? And it worked remarkably well. The highest rates of income growth per capita that we've ever seen. We saw poverty virtually eradicated for the most part in, in Western countries for the first time. And uh, at the same time, in the post-colonial era, just as the West was using these ideas, so too did Global South countries begin to use these same ideas. They started, once they were free of colonial rule, they put their tariff barriers back up. They started intervening in their own economies to provide better wages for workers, to subsidize their own small industries so they could compete on the world stage, et cetera, et cetera. And again, it was remarkably successful for them. Uh, during the 50s, 60s, and 70s, Global South countries grew at a rate of about 3.2% per year in terms of per capita income, which is remarkable. And so we saw poverty rates decreasing. We saw well-being rates increasing. Um, it was really a, kind of a development miracle. And this is the developmentalism movement. And there's a surprising amount of cooperation between all of those countries as well at the time. It's also, we should say, the time of the Cold War, which was obviously going to be used as a cover for the dismantling of a, of a number of these countries' economies. But it's also the time when, you know, the Chicago school, Chicago University, the Chicago school, the neoliberalists are starting to rise. So how does the West, because, you know, the, the whole collective West gets involved in this neoliberal project, how do they start dismantling the developmentalism countries? This is such an important piece of the story. So you would think that as developmentalism was rising across the South, as these progressive governments um, in the post-colonial countries were consolidating these gains against poverty and really building their economies and seeing incomes rise, you would think that, uh, that Western powers would celebrate that fact. After all, they're the ones that have always claimed to be in favor of development, right? But in fact, they were actually pissed off. And the reason was because these new policies that Global South leaders 
were enacting basically prevented Western powers from accessing the cheap resources and labor and raw materials that they had enjoyed during the colonial period. So they had to do something about it. And what they started doing was they started actively intervening to topple democratically elected rulers across the global south who were bringing in policies that hurt Western economic interests. So the first example of this is in 1953 with a U.S. and British-backed coup against the democratically elected leader of Iran, Mossadegh. Uh, He was a reformer. He was improving the livelihoods of ordinary people across Iran. And one of the ways he was doing this was by nationalizing the country's substantial oil reserves. That happened to include oil reserves owned by BP. And that, of course, enraged uh, Britain. They called the U.S. to their aid, and they toppled Mossadegh. And they, uh, they replaced him with a dictator who went on to rule for a number of decades in his place uh, in the service of Western economic interests. And we see the same thing happening over and over again in Guatemala in 1954, in Brazil in 1964, in Chile in 1973, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, we can list dozens of examples of of Western-backed coups against democratically elected leaders. Well, um, Chile is a particularly interesting case because um, the idea of neoliberalism, which is, you know, is attractive to a lot of politicians in the West, both in the UK and in the US, but nobody's really been able to test it out yet because it's too radical an idea. And so there's Chile, wherein these ideas can be tested. Right. So the US intervenes in Chile to topple the much-loved a democratically elected leader, Salvador Allende, who was doing amazing things to improve the lives of ordinary people. And uh, in his place, after toppling him, they installed Augusto Pinochet. And this was a different kind of coup, because instead of just putting in a ruler who would serve Western economic interests, this time the uh, the Chicago school um, got to supply Pinochet with all of their most ideal free market policies, which they were not able to try in the Western world because such policies would be too unpopular. Just completely eradicate basic regulations that protected workers, that kept people from having to pay enormous uh, prices for housing and food, et cetera, et cetera. And as a result, what, what ended up happening actually was that Chile's economy basically crashed. I mean, it was, a, it was a massive crisis. The goals of the Pinochet regime were, were privatization, slashing social spending, uh, flinging open the markets to foreign competitors, etc. And this basically decimated the economy. So the neoliberal experiment in Chile was a complete failure. Um, it wasn't until the 1980s that the economy began to recover. And at this point, the Chicago boys claimed that their experiment had been a success, and they wanted to replicate it around the rest of the world. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. 
Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.